you got your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Isaiah 41. Same chapter as last week. We're jumping a little further back into Isaiah 41. We're going to start in verse 17 this morning. Anybody here ever planted something? Anyone ever planted something with the hope that it would grow? Yeah. Anybody ever planted something and it not grown? Yes. <laughs> Some of you have what we call green thumbs. I don't have either one of those. Um, we uh, plant some things in our yard and sometimes they grow, sometimes they don't. Um, one of the my crowning achievements when it comes to things I've planted in our yard is two blueberry bushes. Those were given to me with the instructions that these will take very little maintenance and should produce a lot of fruit. And that's been true. I mean, I can't kill them. They keep producing fruit and we're all happy. When it comes to, to growing things, right, those of you that like growing things, there's this element we know whenever you plant something, you're going to plant something and then you're going to have to what? Water it. But what are you going to have to do? Wait. You're going to have to wait, right? Like you can water it. You can prepare the soil. You can do different things. But like you can't speed it up. That's pretty hard in a culture where we like microwaves, Keurigs, and on-demand movies, right? Like we like what we want, when we want it, how we want it, right now. So this idea of waiting, we talked throughout this series. We've been talking about promises. These promises are predicated on this idea that a promise is made and then oftentimes it's on us to wait and to believe that the promise is in fact true. When we look around the world, we find that waiting is built into everything we see around us. In the natural world, there is a lot of waiting. And there's a lot of waiting for us when it comes to God's provision. This morning we're talking about the promise. This promise, we've talked about several promises in Isaiah. We've talked about the promise of God's peace. We've talked about the promise of God's renewed strength. We've talked about the promise of God's presence. And this morning we talk about the promise of God's provision. And when I think about God's provision, I think of it in two categories, right? God has provided or he hasn't provided. I either have or I don't have. Like God has come through or he hasn't come through. But this morning I want to put before us a third category, which is God is providing. Maybe it's not God has, or maybe it is not God has not, but what if God is, even in the moments, even in the spaces where you're questioning or wondering if God will provide, the reality is I want us to leave with today is that yes, God is providing. So if you have your Bibles, we'll jump to Isaiah 41 to look at our passage this morning. And as we do, full disclosure, I'm preaching to myself today. As I've been preparing this idea of like God's provision and trusting in the promise of God's provision in the back of my mind again and again, as with most of these promises, has been this question, do you believe it? Do you think this is true? Do you trust this? And so what we get to look at today is in the midst of those questions that I'm having, that I'm guessing you're having, we're going to see that our God invites those questions embraces those questions and wants to meet us in those questions as he reminds us that his promise to provide is true. So Isaiah 41 verse 17 through 20 says this, when the poor and needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst, I the Lord will answer them. I the God of Israel will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia, the myrtle and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain and the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. 
as with a lot of these passages, we read them and we go, well, that sounds beautiful. It sounds like there's water. It sounds like there's trees. It sounds like God's getting glory. And this morning, I feel like there's so much here that God has for us as he reminds us of his goodness and his faithfulness and his provision to us this morning. God is pointing here not to what has happened. He's pointing to what will happen. He's pointing in the future. He's pointing in the future to what he will do. Remember, we're in Isaiah 41, where Isaiah 1 through 39 has been warnings about what was going to happen if the people didn't respond, if they didn't follow God, if they didn't heed his commands, if they didn't come back to him, they'd be sent to exile. They were sent to exile. So then Isaiah 40 on is God saying, hey, I'm bringing you back. I'm calling you home. I'm fulfilling the promises that I had to you. You weren't faithful to me, but I will be faithful to you. So in this place, these verses are read to a people that are sitting in exile saying, what is going to happen? And you get to verse 17 and it says, when, not now, but when we're pointing to the future, there's a future opportunity. There's something is going to happen in the future. When the poor and needy seek water and there is none. That's not the encouraging part of this passage. When the poor and needy seek water and there is none. What do you mean there is none? The first part of this line, the first line points to who. God's people are not in a position of strength. They find themselves in a position of weakness. How, do, how are they described? They're described as poor and needy. Poor and needy. What are they seeking? They're seeking water. Like we're not talking about asking for the world. We're asking for water and they find none. This idea of poor and needy is sobering. It's humbling. And my question to you this morning is where in your world do you find yourself? Would you describe yourself as poor and needy? What comes to mind for you when you think about poor and needy? You see, acknowledging that we're poor and needy is not a sign of failure when it comes to the scripture. It's actually the doorway through which we experience God's divine provision. It is through the poor and needy that help is actually given. You can't give somebody something that they don't think that they need. And so here we find God saying, there will be a time when my people are poor and needy. They recognize their position. They recognize their place. They recognize their posture. You see, God, I'm poor. What does that mean? It means I don't have the resources or the capacity to change certain realities or circumstances in my life. I don't have the resources or capacity to change certain realities or circumstances in my life. Are you poor? What about needy? Where I find myself unable to help myself or I find myself unable to get what I need, unable to do what I need. I need help. You see, the interesting part of these two terms is that they are subjective. They're subjective, but they are a reality. They are an identity that identifies the people that God so often steps into help. Psalm 72, 12 through 13 describes this where the psalmist writes this. He says, For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. That is a beautiful couple verses 
as long as it applies to somebody else, isn't it? Like, I'm so glad God helps the needy. I'm so glad the needy's not me. I'm so glad God helps the poor. I'm so glad I'm not poor. But the reality is when you and I find ourselves in a position where we are poor and needy, it is there that God steps in. What's interesting, as I said earlier, poor and needy are subjective. Think about it. Are you poor? In a given day, I'm guessing you go through, like me, through seasons, through observations, through thought patterns, where in moments you go, man, I'm so poor. Right, you drive around this neighborhood, right? Drive into a certain neighborhood and you go, I am so poor. But then you see some other need, you see a list or something online, you see an ad, you see some need around the other side of the world and you go, oh my gosh, I am not poor. So in the same moment, you can be poor and you can be rich. Why? Because the term poor is subjective. It all depends on who you're comparing yourself to. But the same goes with needy. Needy is subjective. I mean, I need help in this area, but I can give help in that area. I can help you, but I need your help. It's subjective. Do you like to help or do you like to be helped? I think in general, we all like to help, right? We like the position of power. We like the position of self-sufficiency. But self-sufficiency is a place, is a barrier to what God actually wants to provide. So let me rephrase the question. Instead of, do you feel poor and needy? Let me ask you this. Where in your life do you find yourself powerless and in need of help? Where in your life do you find yourself powerless and in need of help? When you look at a circumstance, when you look at a situation, when you look at a need, you recognize it doesn't matter how hard I try. What I do, I can't change that. I'm guessing all of us have many things that come to mind. Many things that if God showed up and said, hey, what can I do for you? We go, could you change this? Can you do that? Can you provide that? What do you do when you recognize that you are in a place where you are poor and needy, where you are in a place where you are powerless and in need of help? You see, remember, God's people find themselves poor and needy, but there are people that God chose when they were poor and needy. There are people that God chose, as we talked about last week, they weren't the greatest, they weren't the strongest, they weren't the greatest, the best people. God chose them when they were nothing. He's brought them, and now that they've rejected him, they find themselves in exile, and he's saying, when they're in exile, my people will get to a place when they are poor and needy. They recognize that they are powerless and in need of help and they will return to me. And when they return, what will I do? I will provide. Check out the end of verse 17. It says, and the Lord will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Last week, we talked about the repetition we see in scripture and how we say things twice to, to emphasize the meaning and the significance of it. I am the God of Israel says, I am the Lord. I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. God won't forsake them because he's the God of Israel. What, who is the God of, what does the God of Israel do? He doesn't forsake his people. Why? Because he always hears. When the poor and needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. We have a God who always hears. We have a God who does not forsake. 
This is an example of people who were worthy of being forsaken. They had rejected God. They'd forsaken God. But God, once again, again and again and again throughout Scripture reminds us, hey, I will not forsake you even though you forsake me. So here embedded in this is the basic need of thirst. They're parched. Their tongue is parched with thirst. They're looking for water, but there is none. Have you ever been really, really thirsty? Yeah, I'm guessing if you've got small kids or had small kids, uh, I can predict when your kids have been the most thirsty. It's probably been bedtime, hasn't it? Like you've had access to water all day long. But all of a sudden now, after an hour and a half of trying to get you in bed, now you're in bed and the head pops up off the pillow and you go, I'm thirsty. Thirst is all-consuming. When you're thirsty, man, it's hard to think about something else. We honestly don't spend a whole lot of time thirsty because if you tell me you're thirsty, we either point to the nearest faucet or the nearest bottle of water. But I know that you know the power of being thirsty and the powers that be in whatever amusement park or sporting venue you've gone to knows how the power of being thirsty is because they, in those settings, know how thirsty you are and they can charge you $6 for a bottle of water and you and I pay it. Because when we're thirsty, we don't care what the cost is. We've got to get something to drink. In those days, even more, thirst was a driving force because water wasn't in abundance. And if you look at the topography between Babylon and between Israel or between Jerusalem, where the people would be coming back to, they would come through a desert and water was a major concern. They're thirsty. They're seeking water, but there is none. But God will hear and God will not forsake. When the people came out of Egypt, thirst was a big factor. God delivered, uh, Moses delivered the people from Pharaoh. They come across the Red Sea and they're roaming through the desert. And what do they want? Water. Exodus 17, three says, but the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They're so thirsty, they think they're gonna die. And they're so thirsty, they're grumbling and complaining. And their grumbling does what? It does nothing. Moses comes before God and he goes, hey, God, look at the people that you had me bring out, your people. Man, they're really kind of mad at me. And it wasn't my fault because I'm just following the direction you gave me, led them out to this desert. They're thirsty. What are we going to do about this? And you follow the story in Exodus 17, God sends Moses to a rock and he says, take your staff. And he says, hit the rock. And then what comes out of the rock? Water. And the people drink and are satisfied. Grumbling has never alleviated anyone's thirst. Prayer is what God asks for us to do when you and I desire our hunger and thirst for something from him. When we look, when we look around and we see God's lack of provision, grumbling is not the response. But God does invite us to voice our 
complaint. He does invite us to voice our need. He invites us to bring those prayers to him. And as we come to him with our needs, we need to be reminded of who we are coming to. Jesus in Matthew 7 gives an example, points to the fact that, hey, even us sinful people do a good job of providing for those who ask, how much more will he not do the same thing for us? Matthew 7, verse 7, it says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? And if then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus is going, wait a second. I am not a distant God. I'm a near God. And I'm near in the sense that I'm like a father who when a kid asks you for water at bedtime, you're gonna give it to them because you want to satisfy their needs. You want to care for them. In the same way, your heavenly father hears your needs, knows your needs. And in our passage in Isaiah, he hears and he does not forsake and he wants to meet those needs. Now, how he meets those needs is different than oftentimes we expect or desire for those needs to be met. We get frustrated and we are in a place where we say, God doesn't hear me and God isn't responding. God has forsaken me. Why? Because God doesn't give us what we ask. But what we ask for is not always what we need, right? You guys know the movie, Bruce Almighty? Talked about that before. He gets the, God says, hey, I'm gonna let you take care of my job, do my job because you think you can do it so much better than me. And when he does take over his job, he gets inundated with all of these prayers that just come flooding in. And he decides to organize them. He says, hey, I got an idea, email. I'll put him in email. He gets all these emails. I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of emails. And he says, what? To fix the problem, he says, yes to all. And he goes, ha, ah, so much better. And then what happens? all hell breaks loose. I mean, it's absolute chaos. Why? Because everybody got what they wanted. A good God does not give his people everything they want. We know this because how many times have you looked back in your life and gone, oh my goodness, I asked God for this. I am so glad he didn't give it to me. What I thought I needed in those moments, you go back, you, I was so confident and God was so distant. God was not listening. God was forsaking me because he wasn't giving me what I need. Now, years later, you look back, months later, you look back and you go, oh my goodness, God gave me exactly what I needed. I'm so thankful he didn't give me what I wanted. God's provision is not to satisfy our every want. It's to give us what we need most. Sometimes, when we feel like God isn't answering, his lack of responding is his provision. He is giving us what we need by giving us, not giving us what we want. You see, a hunger and thirst for God is used repeatedly to remind us of how God invites those us to pursue him. In Psalm 63, we read, Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Picture is given of hungering, thirsting, desiring for more of God. Not necessarily more of what God can give you, but more of God himself. So how does God provide? Here in verse 17, we spent a lot of time there. We've seen they're, they're thirsty. 
We've seen that they're needy. We've seen that they're poor. We've seen that there is no water. God hears, God doesn't forsake, but what is he gonna do? In verse 18 and 19, four times, God says, I will do something. Four times, he says, I will, I will, I will, and I will. I don't know about you, but God's provision is dependent on him, not me. Now, there are times I make wrong choices. There are times I make mistakes and there are consequences. The Israelite people are living in Babylon because of their mistakes, because of their wrong choices and because of their sin. But that does not, while it does mean there's consequences, it doesn't negate God's promises. And so God in this space is saying, hey, I know what you did, but I'm gonna tell you what I will do. Look what he says in verse 18. I will open rivers on bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I'll make the wilderness a pool of water and dry land springs of water. Now, sounds like he's creating a water park, doesn't it? But when we look at this and we go, oh, there's water. There's like water everywhere. That must be good because if you're thirsty and you can't find water and now there's water everywhere, that's awesome. But the reality is there's so much more being said here. Look at the beginning. It says, I will open rivers on bare heights. Bare heights on mountains. Water will flow down a mountain as long as water started on top of the mountain. But if you go to the top of a mountain and there is no water, there's no way for a river to get up the mountain. What God is describing here is I'm not just gonna give you water. I'm gonna do it in a supernatural way. I'm putting water on the mountains. I'm putting fountains in the midst of the valleys where there would be no water. I make in the wilderness a pool of water. There's nothing. There's no water there. Everyone knows there's no water there. And God's going, right, and I'm going to put water there. And dry land will turn to springs of water. What is he saying? In God's provision here, he's pointing to the fact of, hey, when I provide, I can provide through innovation do something that you've never seen before. I can provide through multiplication, multiplying what I've already given you. I can provide through transformation, taking what is bad and making it good. But it's not just water. In verse 19, he says, I will put in the wilderness, the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert, the cypress, the plain, and the pine together. Now, once again, we got the thrust, that there were, the thrust that there was water in the verse 18 and there is now trees in verse 19. But what do these trees tell us? The readers would have heard something loud and clear. God isn't just planting trees. What he's planting here are shade trees. These aren't fruit trees. They don't produce fruit, but they provide shelter. It isn't sustenance that God is providing here. It's shelter. And it's not just shelter. This shelter would have only been found in one place. It would have been found at home. I don't know much about trees, but what we find in these trees here, these were Palestinian trees. These are trees that were, would have been near home. These are not trees that would have been found in the current surroundings where the Israelite people were living in Babylon. The tr one tree that is absent from this list is the palm tree, which would have been found in an abundance in Babylon. So when God speaks to the fact that I'm putting these trees in the wilderness where trees shouldn't grow, I'm putting trees in the desert where the absolutely nothing should grow, which once again is a supernatural sign of God's provision. He's saying not only is it a supernatural provision of the trees that are growing, is the fact that the only way you will see this is if I bring you home. There's water in the mountains. There's trees in the desert. And you have been brought home. Both the water and the shade are pictures of supernatural provision done for a purpose. Check out verse 20. Why is God providing in this way? 
so that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Why am I going to provide this way? Why am I going to show up in a supernatural way? So that people see me. So that my people know that it wasn't an accident. This wasn't a coincidence. This was God. This was their faithful and true God. You see, he wants them to see, and he wants them to know, and he wants them to understand, which is in total contrast to where he started at the beginning of Isaiah. In Isaiah 6, God is giving a charge to Isaiah of what he's going to do. And he, said, he says in verse 9, and he said, Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. The Israelite people didn't want to see. They didn't want to know. And they didn't want to understand who God is and what he was calling them to. But here, God says, the day is coming when you will see. You will know and you will understand who I am. When it comes to our ability to trust in God's provision, we see a progression in these verses that I find helpful just to lay out and remind us of where we've been. And then I want to point us to how Jesus meets us in our needs. We saw at the beginning that God, part of God's provision is being aware of our position, recognizing that we are poor and needy, recognizing we need help, giving voice to our needs. God invites us, doesn't ask us just to sit in it, but he invites us to voice, give voice to what we need, to say we are thirsty, to say we are hungry, to say we need, and you fill in the blank. And number three, he invites us to believe that God hears and will not forsake. Just because God isn't acting doesn't mean God doesn't hear. And just because God isn't acting doesn't mean we've been forsaken. And four, we watch for the impossible to happen, for water to be on the mountains, for trees to be in the desert. And lastly, ultimately, to know and understand what God has done. Now, we run through this progression. I get stuck on number three. I get stuck there, right? I can be aware of my need. I can give voice to my need. But in the absence of God's acting, in the absence of God's provision, but choosing to believe and trust that God hears and has not forsaken me is awfully hard, right? Because it's a whole lot easier to believe that God hears and has not forsaken when God provides. But oftentimes there's a lag between three and four. And sometimes the four doesn't come. Sometimes we need a God that can do the impossible, doesn't do the impossible, and we're left wondering why. When we get stuck on number three, believing, trying, desperately wanting to believe that God hears and has not forsaken, I think it is important for us to remember. Remember who our God is and what Jesus has reminded us about himself. In Mark 9, Jesus goes up to the Mount of Transfiguration and he's transfigured and Elijah and Moses are there and they're hanging out with a couple of the disciples and they come down the mountain and his disciples are complaining. His disciples are, are arguing with a crowd and there's this, this kind of, this um, buzz is going on and Jesus says, what is going on? They, there's this guy who's brought his son who's demon possessed for the demon to be cast out and guess what? The disciples who have been doing miracles who Jesus has sent out can't do what this guy is asking. 
Now imagine for a second, you're a disciple, you're a part of this movement. God, Jesus has empowered you, you've been a part of this, and it's probably pretty awesome. And then something comes up and you've probably gotten a little careless. You've probably gotten a little um, nonchalant going, yeah, well, whatever we say happens. And they're trying to cast out a demon and it doesn't happen. Now, can you imagine the embarrassment in that moment? The crowd's looking at you like, uh, normally this, the thing leaves when you say that, but it's not. Like, what's wrong with you? Did you not say the right words? Like, did you not read the book? Like, what, what's happening? Why is this not working? Like, what, we thought that this was, this, you, were, you would be the answer. And Jesus comes up. Jesus comes up and the Father comes to him. And Jesus asks the Father, how long has this been happening to him? Now, in the context of where we've been in Isaiah, why did Jesus ask this question? Did he ask how long has this been happening because Jesus needed to kind of understand? Jesus wanted to know? No. Jesus knew exactly how long this had been happening. Jesus knows his story. He knows every story. Why does he ask a question to an answer, a question that he already knows? Because he needs the dad to answer the question. He needs the dad to acknowledge this has been so long. Guess what? This has been impossible. And he says from childhood, and it has often cast him into the fire, into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and Help us. We read these words on a page and we jump to what happens in a few moments, but can you sit here for a second? Because I'm guessing for many of you, you are living this right now. This dad is desperate. Desperate. I want someone to help my son. I've watched for years and years. We've tried everything. God seems to have be silent. He seems to have forsaken us. What have I done wrong? What do I need to do right? What would it look like to fix this problem? God, please provide an answer. I'm poor and I'm needy. I'm helpless, powerless to do, to fix this circumstance, this situation in my life. God, help us. Where is it? How is it in your world today that you find yourself saying the same thing. God, would you please help me? All of a sudden, what we see in Isaiah becomes a little bit more real. And we see it lived out in someone else's story because their story is awfully reminiscent to our story. He's, but there's a fallacy. He's asking for help. But did you notice what he said? He says, but if you can do anything, if you can do anything, God, if you can do anything, if you can, and Jesus stops him right there, and he's stopping us right there today. In verse 23, he says, Jesus says, if you can, you're asking the wrong question. Do you know who you're talking to? Do you know who you're praying to? All things are possible for one who believes. Now, is the emphasis on the belief? Is the emphasis on it's the problem's you? You're not believing enough. That's why it's not happening. No, the emphasis is on God. The emphasis is on who you're believing in, not the amount of your belief. 
And the dad immediately says, of the father cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I'm believing with all that I have. It's all that I can do. I've been begging, I've been pleading, I've been asking, and you haven't, God hasn't been doing anything. There's been no solution. I believe, guess what? The lack of God's action, the lack of God's provision, if God has not been responding, it is not on your belief. It's not on the amount of your belief. The question is, do you believe? And our God is not a genie. Our God is not a formulaic God where you do X, Y, and Z and he does A, B, C. But it's in this space that Jesus reminds him and he reminds us it's not a matter of can. It's a matter of if I will. Do you notice the shift in that question? God, if you can, to God, if you will. To be honest, if you will is a much scarier question. Because what do we do with a God who can but chooses not to? What do we do with a God who doesn't provide when we think the way we want him to provide and how we need, think we need him to provide? What happens when he doesn't? When it's not a matter of can, but it's a matter of will. The focus shifts from what I need to what God wants to do in and through me. Earlier, we sang a song and the line was, I don't know what you're doing, but I know what you've done. And the declaration on the back end of that was recognizing we live in this space where we know what you've done, but we don't know what you're doing. But guess what? I know how the story ends. So somewhere between what you've done and what you will do, I sit and trust and faith and willing to believe that you're at work in what you are doing, even if I don't understand it. When hard times come, we find ourselves poor and needy and so thirsty, desperate for God's provision, desperate for God to do what we are powerless to do, desperate for God to show up in ways that we can't show up for ourselves. Maybe you, like me, find yourself saying, here we go again. I've seen this story before. I know what's going to play out. I know what's coming. Once again, God's not coming through. Maybe you've heard the phrase deja vu. Deja vu, when we're going, yeah, I've seen it before. I know what's happening. It's the same thing again and again. It's Groundhog Day again and again and again. And guess what? God's not going to come through. God's not going to provide. God's not going to do what he said he was going to do. And I'm just going to find myself waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. This week, I heard a different term. Maybe you've heard of it. Instead of deja vu, it was vuja day. Vuja day takes deja vu and tweaks it ever so slightly, but it changes everything. You see, vuja day says this is the same thing. This has happened before, but I will choose to see it differently. I will not expect the same thing to happen going forward just because it's happened in the past. I will look and I will anticipate how God will move differently this time. You see, the Israelite people could have been looking, thinking deja vu when it came to exile and his promise to bring them back. But God's declaration of water on the mountains and trees in the desert was vujadeh. Will you expect and will you believe that I can do something different today? 
will you believe that I can do something that you deem impossible? Because impossible is not a part of my vocabulary. In Matthew 19, 26, Jesus looked at them and he said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. There is nothing that is impossible for our God. So when we look to the promise of God's provision, it is never a a question of if he can, it's a question of if he will, which puts the emphasis right back on me saying, will I trust the goodness of my God? You see, there was a time when God used the impossible, used the word impossible, but it was a word to describe our ability to get to him. It was a time when he looked and he saw man that had separated himself from God through sin and said, there is, it is impossible, not for me, but it's impossible for them to ever get back to me. Therefore, I will do what is possible for me, but is impossible for them. I will make right relationship between man and God again. When we are caused and we are challenged to question God's provision, one of the greatest things we can do is be reminded of how he has provided already. Jesus came. He did the impossible. God stepped into this world. He became a human. He died, lived, he died, he rose from the dead so that the impossible could become possible for you and me. And the question, when we're talking about God's provision, I love three questions that John Piper asked that point, put this so poignantly when he says, what is the deepest root of your joy? What God gives you or what God is to you? When you and I, when I wrestle with God's lack of provision in my life, seemingly not coming through on his promises, not being faithful to what he says, not giving me what I want, I want to come back here. Is my joy anchored on what God gives me or is my joy anchored in who God, what God is to me? Who God is to me? Because that was the ultimate provision when God gave us Jesus, when God made us in right relationship with him. So if he can make a way for us to get back to God, what's to say he can't make a way in any other area of our life? Wherever you're holding, whatever you're holding, where you find yourself powerless to change, when you find yourself poor and needy, needing God to step in in a way that only God can, my encouragement this morning for you and for me is to be reminded in what God has already done. To be reminded not what God does, but who God is. He's a way maker. He makes a way for you and I to have access to him. So as we close this morning, I don't know where you are. I don't know what you're holding. I don't know how God hasn't shown up for you. Can I just encourage you? The promise is true. God will provide because he has. He's given us Jesus. He's made a way back to God. So in light of that, look at what we are currently holding in the ways that God seemingly hasn't provided and ask, change the question, not from if you can, but if you will, and then choose to trust in the waiting. Maybe this morning as we wrap up, you want to head to one of the corners and you want to celebrate communion, as it, which is a declaration of what God has done already and what God will make possible for us one day when we are with him together. As you take the bread and dip it in the juice, remembering the sacrifice that was made. The impossible was made possible because of Jesus. Does that change your circumstances this morning? No, unfortunately not. But it can change us 
And it can invite God into those circumstances in a supernatural way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Or thank you for the truth of your promised provision. You knew that above all else, our greatest need was you. You knew above all else, we needed a relationship with you. So God, in the midst of a whole lot of spaces and places in a whole lot of areas where it seems you haven't provided and you haven't shown up, God, I pray for peace. I pray for renewed strength. I pray for a reminder of your constant presence. And God, I pray that each and every person here this morning would sense your love and your care and your desire to hear, to listen, to respond, and ultimately to provide. Not always what we want, but what we need. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.